Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. Jay-Z walks through the office door. I'm like intimidated. You know, what do I say? I got to say something because you like, you know, Kanye, he's the bomb here in Chicago. And like, y'all need to like recognize him. So this is like going in the back of my head. And so we whip out the research and then we show Jay-Z and we were like, look, this is a real artist. Like he has the top three slots. We were just like, this is the bomb. This Kanye is a real deal. Jay is like, he was probably thinking like, dang, I've been wrong all this time. Right. You know? This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Tiffany Green. She is a professional real estate investor who retired at 42 and is now financially free and traveling the world, living off of her passive rental income. Tiffany came up primarily through the radio industry with over 15 years experience as a producer and music director and has an incredible hip hop background, having worked at WGCI in Chicago, Hot 97 in New York City, and for The Source magazine. And all the while, she was investing in rental properties until her passive rental income exceeded her salary, at which point she quit her job and started traveling the world, living entirely off of her passive income. She has now been to almost 50 countries. Tiffany, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Good to have you here. We got to set the scene. We are doing this interview live in person in Lagos, Nigeria, and we have just opened a bottle of South African red wine. It's a very nice red blend, and uh, we're going to be drinking through that while we're having this conversation from West Africa. Yes. (laughs) I had to return for my ancestors. Yeah, well, maybe open it up and talk yeah. a little bit about that. Talk <laughs> talk a little bit about the about the, your experience in Africa thus far, and um, you know some of the DNA tests that you did and and what you've traced. Oh man! So open up with that. Well, I mean, <laughs> well, let's go in deep, huh? Well, you know, big up to my ancestors from you know West Africa. 
mainly taking the DNA test and finding out from my mom's side would be uh, Cameroon, Balamiki, the tribe, and the Fong people from Gabon. And then from my grandfather's side, it would be Igbo, which is, you know, one of the main tribes right here in Nigeria. And all those tribes are from the grassland and they all used to like live near each other. So it was very important for me to come back to Nigeria and just bring it back for them, you know, as slaves who couldn't own property. And, you know, here I am, the sixth generation and she's owning property and living off her property <laughs> and loving life. <laughs> yeah. And so this is your first time in Nigeria. It is. It is my first time in Nigeria. And we've been here for about three weeks together. And uh, we got a super cool squad that we're with. And uh, what, what have you thought of Lagos? And what would you share with people about how Nigeria has been? Uh, you know what? It's been a wonderful surprise because uh, you hear so many stories about Nigeria or Nigerians. And then you hear about like, you know, just can't be trusted. I I'll tell you one thing. I can't even use my credit card. My credit card company won't allow me to spend money in Nigeria because they stop every payment. And I, when I mean every single payment, Every payment, it could be a dollar and it's like fraud alert, fraud alert. And it's like, come on. I think that was like the 90s, right? It's like, let it go. That is not the experience of today. I've met such wonderful, incredible, loving, honest people who have really just taken me in. And it's been wonderful. I'm going to return to uh, Nigeria. It has really been amazing. And just to give you a, a sort of an example of that, the irony, I actually had the other day, I bought a espresso, right? And my card didn't work, right? For the reasons that you're talking about, right? <laughs> yeah. People set your card down. So then I went to the ATM with the, you know, the waiter went outside with me and went to the ATM and my card wasn't working in the ATM, mm -hmm. right? And I was like, oh man, now I got this bill. I don't have the cash. My car didn't work. I can't get the cash out of the machine. What do I do? And this Nigerian guy who's at the ATM next to me, he goes, he goes, oh, is your, is your card not working? I was like, no, it's not working. And he's like, you know, you got to pay a bill at this coffee shop. I was like, yeah. He goes, how much is it? I, I, and the guy tells him how much it is. He just opens his wallet takes out the money, gives it to the waiter. Mm -hmm. and, he, yeah. and, and he and I look at him, I, I'm like, <laughs> speechless. I'm like, bro, how do I get that back to you? Wow. And he's like, he's like, don't worry about it, bro, I got you. And he just gets in his car and drives away. <laughs> yes. Nigeria. Yes. I mean, countless stories of people just welcoming us, inviting us like we're family. For instance, Matt and I went to an art gallery created by Nake, which is a woman, right? Had no idea. It's a four-story art gallery that's beautiful, beautiful building. And so we're walking around and Nike, she's like, hey, we're going to the New Yam Festival, which is her festival from her home village. And she was like, why don't you guys join us for the weekend? And I was like, oh, great. It's wonderful. You know, like, how much is it? And they were like, oh, it's nothing. You know, you're our guest. We'll take care of you. And if I was stunned, I didn't believe it. Right. You know, and then so I went back the next day to the gallery to confirm just to make sure I was hearing right. I was like, so you guys sure this is free, right? You're inviting me. You're I get to ride with you. This is like a seven hour drive to close to what what is it? Matt wanted to make sure that I understood where I was going. Abuja. Abuja. Near Abuja. <laughs> Near Abuja. He's like, Tiffany, this is like an eight hour drive. And I like look. 
I've heard about these yam festivals. <laughs> I'm going. And sure enough, it was like a seven, eight hour drive. And it was completely free. They picked me up at like 4.30 a.m. And we stopped along all these different villages and just meeting people. And of course, when they see me, they're like, okay, you're not from around here. It didn't matter. They just took me in, open arms, smiles. We get to her compound, Nike's compound, which is gorgeous. I mean, it's like a 20-room compound with an art gallery and this huge big mountain, which is really a rock that sits in the back of the compound and people hike it every morning and then you get to over you overlook the village and all this beautiful green scenery. It was beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. It's been really, really amazing. It's my first time in West Africa as well. So it's uh, it's an incredible region. I'm going to continue on and go see Ghana and go see Senegal and check out some some different areas uh, of West Africa because it's really been incredible. But I know that... So I just came last month. I was in Cape Town in South Africa and I was there for about two months hanging out. And I know you've also spent a bunch of time in Cape Town. And I wanted to ask you about that because I remember the last time you went to Cape Town, you had quite a story of getting stranded and then hitching a ride back in a pretty unconventional way. And I was wondering if you could tell that story. Man, I always end up in these like random situations that are kind of sketchy, but somehow they turn out (laughs) 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 in the most glorious over the rainbow, over the rainbow way. So it's like, I'm in Cape Town and this is my first time going to Africa Burn. And I don't know if you know about Africa Burn, but it's like the sister to Burning Man in America. And it's like in the middle of the desert, way somewhere in Tinkertown, outside of Cape Town. And I hired a guy to come drive the rental car to pick me up, right? Because you have to like make your way into the desert and make your way out of the desert. So the rental car company wouldn't allow him to take the car. I didn't know this, right? I'm stuck in the desert. And I'm just like, where is he? Oh my God, what is going on? So I pack my suitcase and drag it across the desert because in Africa Burn, they have their man-made airport. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go to this man-made airport, which is just like a runway <laughs> they created in the desert. And I'm going to see if I can hitch a ride, right? You know, like, hey, let's try it. I get to this man-made airport and the people were so gracious. They were like, you know what? Just wait here. Let's just see what happens. This guy pulls up in his private plane. And he hears my story. He was like, oh, you know what? I'll take you back to Stellenbosch. You know, Stellenbosch is wine country in Cape Town. And I was like, yes, I can get an Uber from there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So he puts me in his private jet and we fly over the mountaintops of Cape Town. And this is my first time in one of those like little mini jets, right? And you can feel every little bump in the air. And I'm nervous and panicking. And he's like, oh, you know, I've been a pilot 
for 20 something years. And then he explains to me how like he says, don't worry about the turbulence. He says that's just natural. It's like when you he said it's the heat that's rising up from the mountains and it's, it's causing the plane to go right over you know, it, it causes the turbulence, but it's not it's not a scary thing. And he just took away the fear, you know, in my whole body. And I just released and let go and just watched over the mountaintops. And then we landed in in wine country. And he didn't charge you anything. <laughs> he didn't charge me anything. He said thank he, he thanked me and I thanked him. And, you know, life is like that, you know. I like if you go in and you don't have these high expectations, you just never know what happens. But my advice is just to like try stuff. I always say, say yes and ask a question. And my my question was like, hey, can I get can I get a lift, you know, on your jet? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> to Stalinbosch from Africa Burn. <laughs> <laughs> Stellenbosch is I just spent my birthday in Stellenbosch last month and it is one of the most beautiful wine countries in the world and you got to fly for free on a private jet in Stellenbosch and then people always tell me that oh Tiffany you're lucky and I don't know why I'm so agitated with that word when people say that it's almost like I see red and I'm just like well, I guess if that's, you know, if you want to call it, but I just choose to call it like, I just think you have to like put together a plan, A, B, and C. And, you know, if A doesn't work, then you go to B. B doesn't work, you go to C. The point is you don't give up. I don't see the luck in it. I just see like the effort. Right. I love that. So let's let's use that actually to transition and talk a little bit about your, you know, you coming up and getting into the radio space. Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you got into radio initially? Well, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I had a wonderful childhood. I was raised by my great grandparents. So they kind of instilled in me word is bond, uh, them both being from uh, Mississippi and them both remembering how hard times were. But somehow during those times, they were they owned a liquor store. They owned their own house and they made it happen. And I just always remember liking the concept of owning property. I don't know. It's just something that just settled in my heart. And it was just something that I loved. So from St. Louis, having that type of background and always pursuing my passion, another passion would be music. So in college, I took up journalism and my favorite course was radio. And I also had a minor in business. And so from there, I started to intern at radio stations in St. Louis. And of course, when you work in radio, you move around a lot. It has a high turnover ratio, you know, like you can't really per se, get comfortable in a job for whatever reason. They always say that um, you're not a pro until you're fired in radio. <laughs> and so, yeah, so you move around a lot. It's a wonderful industry, uh, wonderful people. It's so much fun. It's a lot of fun. You know, meeting artists, breaking new artists. And for me, I really like the, the part of like doing for my community. I always felt like, I owe great responsibility to my listening community. So I always felt like it was important that when I program music for them, 
I just didn't give them just like the rah, rah, rah stuff or all this like sexual and all this violent stuff that you tend to get on like some radio stations because people want to balance. And that balance would be between like love songs, gospel songs, and intelligent thoughts behind the content and programming. So it was very important for me to give that back to my community. And that's what I really, really, really loved about radio. So let's talk a little bit about your hip hop experience in particular, because you have worked for the most iconic hip hop enterprises of all time. I mean, you were with the Source magazine when, for people that don't know, when the Source magazine was the preeminent uh, hip hop periodical, right? I mean, the preeminent hip hop publication, you were with Hot 97, which is probably the single most famous and influential hip hop station of all time ever in the history of the art form and so forth. So can you talk a little bit about, first of all, maybe you need to start by talking about what does hip hop mean to you as an art form? And then why did you want to go and work for those particular outlets? Well, you know, hip hop was very important for me. I just remember growing up in the 80s. And at the time, like the first group I can remember was New Edition. And then all of a sudden, there were these groups like NWA and Public Enemy. And I remember Run DMC and LL Cool J. And just having all of that like in my background. And that's what I listened to. And then come um, fast forward to the 90s, I started to intern at a radio station. And, you know, this is like a, a young girl from St. Louis. And it's not I didn't really have anything. It's not like anybody showed me the ropes, but hip hop did. It was a time where you saw young people my age come into like a lot of money. You know, the rappers, the managers. It was a time where a lot of money came into the community other than drugs, right? Because when I was growing up, it just seemed like all the neighborhood boys were into drugs because that was like what was available to them. And then all of a sudden, here's this new form that it's like, oh, it's legal. And I can use my creativity and my talents. And I saw that like flourish around me. And then, you know, when we started to work at radio stations and then we had to work with executives, right? Like huge executives at these record companies. And then all of a sudden, you know, they would be like, hey, let's go to this high end restaurant. Hey, let's put down the black card. You know, (laughs) you're just like, what? What is this? And I just remember how like hip hop helped this whole generation of kids who had nothing like transform into like this whole generation being exposed to so many different things that we just never had before. So I think hip hop was, was very, very crucial for that. For me, it gave us a voice because definitely were a lot of messages in hip hop music back then compared to now, I would have to say. And it was like a financial vehicle, right? So important. It was so important. The only downside that I just really didn't like was the negative images that hip hop portrayed, especially black women in. Like that's the part it just, you know, has always been uncomfortable for me. But it definitely that was on the negative side. But on the positive side, it just created this whole generation of like, finally, we can have money and do things and 
send our kids to college or have a 401k or, you know what I'm saying, have a portfolio, financial portfolios. And all of that was so important. Right? And that, that just was not... We never discussed that because we never had the education or we had the, never had opportunities to uh, have stuff like that. So how did you make moves to get in with The Source and WGCI and Hot 97? Because at the time, anybody that was into hip hop, those were the preeminent places to, if you wanted to be in the hip hop scene and working for the top hip hop outlets, those were them. And what did you do from St. Louis to get in with the, I mean, just, and just to contextualize, I mean, for people that don't understand kind of the role of Hot 97, like I, I was a hip hop DJ in the nineties. And, you know, when I was growing up, I lived outside New York city for a few years. And then I went to high school in Buffalo, New York and stuff, but I would come back to New York and when I did, I can literally remember just even like driving into the city or having someone drive me into the city, you know, as a kid, before I was even in range, I would have it on Hot 97 before it even came in and just waiting for like the music to start when I got close enough to the city because it would be all new stuff that you would just never hear outside of that market. And then I would go in and I would go to all the record shops in New York because they would have records that you could not get in other cities. You couldn't get them in other places. New York was that for me. And it was so special and it was so amazing because the Hot 97 would just break everything, all the new artists, especially the New York City-based artists. And it was just incredible. And so anybody that was into that East Coast hip hop scene, that would be the preeminent place to work. And, so, and similarly, publication wise with the Source magazine. So how did you make that move to get in with those publications and those stations? It was really an internship, which I'm so sad to see internships go out the window, like unpaid internships. Like I know that's like a dirty word now and it's so awful, but that really gave an opportunity for kids who didn't have any connection to the business. I didn't have a famous uncle or something that could just be like, hey, come on into this radio station here. It's wide open for you. I had to go and work for free and with an internship. And then that allowed me to meet people that allowed other people to see that I'm an asset, that I'm a resource. And then they hired me. And then from there, once I had my foot in the door and like my first station was in um, St. Louis at Magic 108. And then from Magic 108, I got an opportunity to become a music director at WJBT in Jacksonville, Florida. And so here I was, you know, moving away from home for the first time, living in Florida, which was like a whole new world for me. Florida is a little like, you know, <laughs> okay, Florida. It was just a whole new experience, let's just say. And then from Florida, moved to Birmingham, Alabama, Birmingham, back to St. Louis to become a program director at a hip hop station called The Beat. And then on to Chicago and then on to New York. So you move around a lot, but, you know, you, you create and make a name for yourself. And the cool part, too, is that I kind of came in to a time where now, you know, radio stations across the country could like work together. Right. We would uh, get on a conference call every week. And then, you know, so here I am on this conference call with all these big wig radio programmers and they get to know my name and then I get to tell them, hey, this is what I'm feeling. This is hot. And then next thing you know, you're like breaking new artists and those big wig program directors are like, hey, what's that kid? What's her name? Tiffany. 
what is she feeling this week, right? So you start to like <laughs> build your name. And then next thing you know, you get to work at some big name markets coming from little St. Louis. So, I mean, that's kind of like how it happened. It was also a wonderful time too. Like um, I never got a chance to meet Biggie or Tupac because they were, you know, both killed before I had the chance to meet them. But everybody else after them, I was able to meet or help break a record for big name artists, you know, from Nas to Jay-Z to Kanye. And R&B, R&B was such a big deal for me too, from Alicia Keys or so many artists. I remember Floretry was such a a big deal for me and countless artists and stuff like that. So that's kind of like how it happened. So how would that work? How would you sort of break artists. I mean, when you're the music director and you're you're doing that, how exactly does that work? And then what would be the response to that as you would be doing that and people would be coming to you? And how did you sort of, you know, can you explain a little bit of the inside about how that worked and then how you met with different artists and, and what that was like? Well, you know, as a music director slash program director, record companies, they always introduce you to their very new artists because they want you to like the artist. They want you to play their music. And so you become like on the first name basis with all the new artists that come out. And then for me, I was always a program director, music director who would frequently go to the clubs. You know, and it was very important for me, like whatever my listeners were into and whatever was hot in the street, I wanted to give it right back to them through the airways. And so I just had a a knack for the hot new artists who had like great music. And I wanted to expose my listeners to that. And those songs would just like blow up. I mean, I just remember like, for instance, even like with John Legend, I just remember the first time hearing Ordinary People, which was like a side B record. Like the record company was not pushing that song. It's like, because, you know, they would consider it as being slow. It was very adult like in meaning and sound and it's like no this could never work on like a hip-hop r&b station right and it was just like but it was a touching song and this this kid john legend he can sing and so you would just take records like that and just put it on the airwaves and you let it mature right you know things have to mature so you let it play for like a month right so that listeners are familiar with it and then like Probably by like the second, third month, you have like this mega hit on your hands. And then other people from other radio stations would hear about it. And they'd be like, oh, so that's working for you? Yeah, they will put it in. And then it's like this this um, train that's just like steamrolling across the country. And then that's kind of like how music like catches on. And, you know, if it's and it's popular in states, then, you know, now it's like, oh, then, you know, the UK or like, oh, what that's happening there and vice versa. It's so global now. But yeah, but that's really how it, it happened back then. That's how you would break new artists. And then then, you know, it's funny because when you you meet the new artists, they're like they're hungry. Right. And they're just like, oh, I want to be your best friend. Play my music, play my music, whatever. And then they become these like superstars and they still remember you. Right. Because you've seen them so many times throughout their development and they just know you, you know, by name and you know them or you can become family because you've kind of like come up through the ranks together. 
So that, that's kind of a cool part too, right? Or just in at the time working at WGCI and at the time I came up with, with Kanye, right? And so Kanye would, you know, I know everyone's like, oh, he's acting and he probably needs some some medication or something like that. But it's just like, I mean, Kanye always was like that rapper in the corner listening to his beats and rapping. And like, he didn't care if you didn't like it. He liked his stuff and he knew his stuff was good. And he that was just Kanye. So, yeah, respect his talent. You know, he's an artist. And how was that experience when you were in the studio and Kanye was coming up and his tracks started getting traction, right? And you were telling me that story about when Jay-Z came into the studio? Well, yeah, because this was the time where like, so Johnny, I mean, Kanye was like, he started getting respect as a producer and, you know, they were not feeling him as a rapper. And when I say they, meaning like Jay-Z and the people who um, had him signed to the record label. Even the record label, they were just like, you know, whatever. <laughs> Kanye, whatever. It just so happened Jay-Z was visiting the radio station at WGCI. And Kanye, we, we do weekly research. And Kanye probably had like the top three number one slots on our radio station. And WGCI is a pretty big deal. And, you know, Jay-Z walks through the office door and, you know, and I, I'm like intimidated, you know, voice cracking, barely can speak. And I'm just like, what do I say? I got to say something because you like, you know, Kanye, he's the bomb here in Chicago. And like, y'all need to like recognize him. So this is like going in the back of my head. And so we whip out the research and then we show Jay-Z and we were like, look, th this is a real artist. Like he has the top three slots. And I think at the time, one of them was Alicia Keys. What is it? You don't know my name or something like I can't even remember so long ago. And we started playing Alicia Keys song from like an unedited version from Kanye. It wasn't even fully mastered yet. We were just like, this is the bomb. And we put it into the radio station. Again, nobody didn't know who Alicia Keys was, right? Probably like number two. And then Kanye's West Jesus Walk was probably like number one. And then all of that, you know, we started playing early. And so when Jay-Z sees the research, that backs up like, hey, we're just not like hometown favorite radio station trying to back up Kanye. This is real deal. Like people love his music. And so then they, I remember the time the radio executive, they get on the phone with the New York executives and they were like, hey, this Kanye is a real deal. <laughs> they were literally like, they called the New York office from Chicago. Hey, yeah, this Kanye is a real deal. Like, uh, no, we really need to like back him. We need to really get behind him. And, you know, and Jay's standing there like, I wish I could do a Jay-Z voice or something. And Jay is like, he's looking at it, right? And he kind of, he Jay kind of like analyzes stuff, right? I don't, it's not like he has a lot of words to say, but he, he you know, you see the like wheels turning him thinking. He's like looking at this research. He was probably thinking like, dang, I've been wrong all this time, right? You know? <laughs> that's probably what he was thinking and literally they they started like getting behind kanye yeah that's amazing 
I love these inside stories too, in terms of like how all this stuff transpired, right? Because when you're outside, like you don't see all of this, you know, internal stuff and how this stuff actually goes. You just see like whatever comes out, right, yeah. from the top. So, do you have any? I mean, when you were at Hot 97, can you talk a little bit about just because that's like super, you know, near and dear to my heart? Do you have any sort of like inside stories you can share about like, you know, maybe people that you met there or people that impressed you or left an impression on you or, or any kind of, you know, stories about what hot 90, what it was like to be inside working at hot 97. I mean, hot 97 was very interesting. I was happy to work at the station before they like upgraded and rehabbed everything. So like whatever the hot 97 stories you've heard of and, happened in the studio it's like I had a chance to sit in those seats and touch the desk and the countertops and you know the board that so many others have touched from I mean just everyone and so that was incredible to me and it was so cruddy and grimy (laughs) (laughs) Like in the studio, like it had been lived in, you know, it was lived in and just and you felt all that energy as you like walk through the hallways. Yeah, just an incredible time. And at the time I was working with the morning show with um, Cypher Sounds and uh, Rosenberg and also the program director um, Ebro and but Ebro's on the morning show now he heads up the morning show now so very fortunate to like work with those guys and just all the artists that like come through the radio station and mind you radio more than just artists come through the radio since you have politicians you have sports figures I mean everybody wants to come through the radio station to like deliver a message so I've been incredible blessed to have just chosen that as my career. Who is who are there any people that kind of stand out to you that you've met over the years, you know, working in these capacities that, you know, really enamored you or impressed you or that just kind of that stood out that that really made an impact on you? Any people? I want to say stories that have impacted me something where I wish I could have gone back and changed some things. I just remember at time when you get to meet these artists and they're very sensitive, right? And they're coming to you at a time where it's like you hold the power to make or break them. And, you know, sometimes I don't think I really realize that, you know, because they're very sensitive and I'm such a like focused person. Like when I, it's almost like a dog with a bone with me. It's like when I like focus in on something like it's that's just what I see. Right. And it's like I wish I had a little bit more finesse, you know, for instance, like I remember the time when Jennifer Hudson, she had just lost the American Idol, but she was still a hometown favorite for Chicago. Right. So she comes to the radio station and you see this look of she's defeated on her face. Right. She, she has this look of just like she's so sad because she lost American Idol, right? And so she's sitting in my office and she's sitting there with her head down. In my mind, I just wanted to like shake her, right? And I just wanted to be like, girl, no, you're good. Like, it's going to be good. It's going to be all right. But I didn't like choose that moment to like uplift her. So I always like remember that. And now to see her like go on and do all these things in spite of not winning like American Idol, right? Like who who cares she didn't win? Like look at her now. 
So sometimes like those opportunities, those missed opportunities, I just wish I would have like had the courage, just like I had the courage to like tell Jay-Z about Kanye. I just wish in that moment to kind of like encourage her at that time. You know, sometimes when people just need that, they need you to uplift them, you should do it. So I think that's kind of like taught me to kind of like speak up and and just say things, <laughs> kind of like help people in those moments or whatever. I love that. I know one of the other people that you really admire and appreciate out of Chicago is Common. I love Common. Can yes. you can you talk a little bit about Rashid. why why you like him and any <laughs> everybody and, likes Common? And, well, can you talk? I mean, but you've met him, and not everybody's <laughs> met him. So, can you talk about uh, what he's like and well, why you appreciate him? Because well, everybody loves you know that it's that always like that one guy or one woman in the room, and everybody just loves them. Like they just have this smile that lights up the room. But then at the same time, Common is kind of like the only person that I kind of know where everybody just knows him by his first name. Like, that's just how real he is. You like, you'd be like, oh, that's Common, but you you choose to call him by his first name. You'd be like, what's up, Rashi? He's bigger than Common. His, his personality, his love, his warmth, his care, his thoughtfulness. And he's like, and it's so funny too, because he loves the lady. So I love to see him come around and he lights up around women. He just loves women. He just can't help but just be like, he's like enamored with women, right? Not like being like, um, I'm trying to hit that or anything like that. He just really has this love and appreciation. So I love to see that in him. And he's very thoughtful. Like, like Kama would send like as a, a thank you. He, he would send flowers to like the radio station. He just had personal touches just like that. Like to just make you love him. Right. And he's always like giving back, always wanted to uplift people, promote his community, give back to his community. I mean, you just, you can't help that. He's a great guy. <laughs> That's so awesome. I love that. I love it because people have impressions of people. And then when you, you know, verify that, in fact, those impressions are real and authentic and consistent. That's so amazing. It, it is. Yeah. It really is. To this day, like, I'm still a fan of, like, uh, Beyonce. I, I just remember, like, them coming up and the like Destiny's Child, they would always like play our concerts. So again, when artists are new, you see them constantly. They're coming through the radio station. They're performing for you or you're going to their concerts and you're backstage and you're interviewing them. And so you get to like, you become familiar with one another. And so it's so funny because to this day, like, you know, Beyonce so just, just make a star and Kelly, you know, all of that. And like, it, it we like when they see you out, they'll be like, you know, I mean, Beyonce may not know my name, but she's probably she's like, wait a minute, she you know she'll do like a head nod, you know, she's like, I know, I know you from somewhere, but it, it's like that's like the kind of cool stuff or whatever, and just like coming up with people, and um, and she's another good one, her Kelly, just hard workers, like they've always been hard workers from like day one, and. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes 
sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I wanna offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. It, it just, it carries through, right? It just carries through, like that's who they are. So awesome. So, all right. So as you were coming up through radio and doing all of this stuff, you were also investing in real estate on the side. So I want to get into that as well. What got you into real estate investing initially? And can you just talk about your first real estate investment and how you started? What got me into real estate investing is radio. Again, radio has this turnover rate. You know, you could be employed one day and unemployed the next day and you could be at the top of your game and that doesn't stop an owner from coming in and flipping the format or for whatever reason, you can lose your job. And it, that always stuck in the back of my mind. For me, I said, well, if I buy a house, because I knew I was like, I have to buy a house. I don't care what I do. I was like riding around in a Honda Accord for 10 years and people were like, Tiffany, please get rid of the Honda Accord. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was like, I don't care. I want a house, right? You know? And so I would like save my money. And when I decided to buy a house, I said, you know what? I need to buy a duplex. Because if I'm ever fired from radio, how can I afford this, this big mortgage? And so it was like an insurance policy for me. And this was back in like 2003. And the only thing I would look at were duplexes. I was not looking at a single family home. And that was my insurance policy for radio. And that's how I got into real estate. Because in my mind, I was going to do radio forever. Like this is a passion. It's a love for me. And so I brought a two flat on the South side. And I remember at the time, Kanye's manager time was John Monopoly. And I was so terrified. And John was like this big man around town who, who understood real estate and investing and all this. Other. And I was like, John, should I like, oh my, should I buy this house? Like in this neighborhood, you know, and I was still kind of like new to Chicago. And they were, he was like, oh yeah, you'll be fine. Buy it. And I bought the house and I just remember the time it was in this neighborhood. It was it was kind of a bad neighborhood, but it was a two flat. It had good bones. And to me, it was in a neighborhood that was going to like eventually come up. It was so close. It was five minutes, almost five minutes to downtown Chicago. And it was around parks, a quick walk to the lake. It had the, every transportation was uh, public transportation was right there at my feet in this particular neighborhood and we had all kinds of schools around it. And I just felt like, you know what, it's going to be all right. And it's funny because to this day, those are the factors that I look for when you purchase a property. And it just, it all kind of, for me, started like as common sense. And so that's how I got into real estate. And throughout my radio career, that first house that I bought, a two flat, in 2003, has always been with me. And, you know, when I did lose my job in radio, 
that two flat was there. And that two flat, I was receiving income. One of the units paid the mortgage and the other unit was income in my pocket. And so it just made sense to repeat. And can you talk about, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. And, and by the way, we at, at Maverick Investor Group have been helping our clients buy in rental properties in markets that we consider to be investor advantaged markets. And one of them is the South side of Chicago, which we've been helping people buy two flats on the South side since, you know, at least for probably the last seven years or so, you know, since we've been in business and those are just, you know, really, really solid cash flow plays exactly like you're talking about. So once you did that and you had that and you felt the security of passive rental income, uh, what then was your next move and how did you move on to build your portfolio from there? Well, when I lost my job in radio from there, I've always wanted to like travel the world. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to start this like working with artists on the other side of radio. I'm going to try to manage an artist because they travel around the world. So it wasn't even really about working with artists. It was really about like, how can I get around the world, right? Because <laughs> I always have these plan A, B, and C, right? And I started to work on the other side. But that kind of traveling really didn't suit me because when you you manage an artist and you're traveling to these countries, it's like you only have a day and you're coming in trying to set up for a concert. You don't get to see the city and you're go, 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 go. And I was just like, well, this is not really turning out. This is not really working out for me. And so I purchased a property in New York because the artist that I was managing was based in New York. So I moved to New York. So this time I buy a condo and it was a very high end condo. I went to some investor conference and they were like, hey, if you're going to buy property, buy something that's really, really expensive and then let it appreciate. Right. <laughs> So I buy, I follow the model, right? But they didn't tell me that the market was going to crash like the next month. Like I buy it in October 2008 and then boom, November, the whole economy just blows up and my whole life savings was stuck in this condo. So I literally had to like move out of the condo and rent the condo. And so I have my whole life savings in this condo in New York, but I still have the two flat in Chicago Two flat still saves me. The condo in New York, I was fortunate enough to rent it out, but the rent covered the HOA fees and the taxes and the mortgage, right? So no income was coming from that. So I was stuck. I like I had to hold on to it until I could cash out. So but it was a good learning lesson for me. So finally, probably like six years later, it cashes out. <laughs> I held on to it and I was able to receive a, a loan modification. And again, people will say, oh, Tiffany, you were lucky. You got a loan modification. And, I, and again, I'm like, no, but I applied like 10 times. But but after those two experiences uh -huh. in terms of the lessons learned about real estate investing yeah. and what types of assets you want to buy, yes. what did you then go on to buy more of? So then after having that experience and I was able to cash out of that condo, whew, thank you, thank you, thank you. I was able to cash out and have this pool of money. So in my mind, I said, you know what? 
I need to go buy more multifamily units, right? That that condo was a scary situation. And so that's what I did. And so I had a list of like five markets where you could buy low, but they had high rent. So I started to look at um, Little Haiti in Florida. I started to look at uh, Tremaine in New Orleans was already familiar with the South Side of Chicago and around this time started to look at Detroit because Detroit was going through that whole bankruptcy as a city. So I literally took like two weeks and just went around and scoped out the different neighborhoods. And I almost bought in New Orleans, but it didn't work out. And Detroit, I decided not to to buy in Detroit because to me, it's like you had to live in Detroit. And monitor your property at that time. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. So Chicago, Chicago was it. And I went and bought more property in Chicago. And I stuck to the South Side because that's what I knew. And at the time, they, you know, this is when Obama was had the announcement that he was bringing a library to the South Side. He said, oh, it's between Jackson Park and Washington Park, two you know, neighborhoods I was familiar with. And in my mind, I said, well, you know, if I'm the president and I had to like build a library, I'm going to build it next to some water, which is Jackson Park. And so I focused on Jackson Park before he made the announcement. And I bought like a, uh, a four flat in Woodlawn, right? Brought it cheap. And then lo and behold, probably like what, eight months later, maybe something like that, he announces, hey, the Obama Library is opening up in Jackson Park. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> now I can't even get a, 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 a multi-unit in Woodlawn anymore. You just can't. You just, you know, you can't even get these multi-units anywhere because now it's like this thing. Right. It's got its own like equation, like buy a multi-unit, forget about single families home because this is where the, the, the money is. And I was like, yo, that's been my thing since 2003. Like now it's difficult. Well, I love I love the lesson here, though. Right. Which is that if you, you don't want to buy exclusively for speculation, right? Like the New York condo was exclusively for speculation. And if it doesn't go up in value, you're in big trouble because you're not cash flowing. Whereas on the South side, even if you had guessed, you're speculating that the presidential library might be built in this area. And if it does, it'll give it an appreciation boost. But even if it's not built in that area and you guessed wrong, you still got solid cash flow. True. And that's okay. Very true. Very true. So you make your money when you buy. Yes. And then if there's appreciation, if you guessed right, if you're in the path of growth, cool, that's a bonus. Mm -hmm. But if you're not, still all good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's a super, super, super important lesson. And the other thing that... I take from your story and your strategy is that you buy and hold instead of flip. Yes. That's really significant. You know, a lot of the gurus or the real estate, you know, people that are trying to sell you real estate investing courses or the infomercials and all this kind of stuff is trying to tell people that they should become property flippers. Uh, But property flipping, of course, is basically just putting your time into a source of active income, which in a best case scenario is simply going to allow you to make, if if it's even profitable, right? Which is hard to make it profitable. But if it is, best case scenario, you've got a capital gain. 
which you now have to pay tax on, and you no longer have the property. Whereas if you're buying to hold, that's where you have the long-term, month-after-month, passive residual income, and you have the gradual appreciation of home prices over time. And you also have freedom. That was a very big factor for me, my time. And to me, I always equate flipping houses to like owning a franchise. It's hard work, y'all, okay? (laughs) (laughs) That is a nine to five. And I just didn't want a nine to five anymore. Like I had a 24-hour job in radio, okay? Because it doesn't let up. And I wanted to reclaim my time and have freedom. And so when you hold a property, I have long-term tenants who basically take care of the property for me because I'm making sure that they're good tenants. And, you know, so it's almost like we're in there working together. Exactly. (laughs) Or or they're working for me. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. And you have a reliable stream of passive residual income that covers your expenses so you don't have to put in the hours and the work and all that at the job. Yes. And you can travel the world and do your thing. Yes. And have your expenses covered. Yes, absolutely. That Yeah, that was that's exactly it. Can you talk a little bit about when you're buying a property and you're selecting which property to buy? So let's say you've decided on the market and you've decided on the neighborhood, right? How do you do your due diligence on the actual asset and select the actual house and decide to close on it? Well, now, you know, part of my requirements, again, as I list before, would be I want to be by water, parks, public transportation, but I also want to buy a property that I would live in myself because to me, it's easier to get good tenants into a property that you would live in yourself. So I look for that. And I also think it's very important to buy around institutions. So, you know, when I bought in Woodlawn, it was very important that the University of Chicago, at the time, they were given stipends to staff. Like any University of Chicago staff, if you bought a house or rented in a woodlawn, they would give you like a $5,000 or $10,000 stipend, stipend towards the property. So they were helping to build that community. And I just think that's so important that you find institutions or businesses that will help you that are rebuilding those communities that I live in. And I'm also looking at communities that are not like these high-end luxury apartments and in buildings and stuff like that. Or I'm looking for communities that will become that when I buy. So that's also important as well. So I'm looking for communities where working class people can afford and they want to maintain a good neighborhood and they help you rebuild and reshape a neighborhood. And then before you know it, it becomes this neighborhood where it's like, man, we can't even get into that neighborhood now, you know, but I bought in early. Now, when you were buying rental properties and you were building up your real estate portfolio while you were working at your job, did you have a goal of getting your passive income to a certain point where it could cover your expenses? Like, how did that, you know, investment process go for you when you knew you got to the point where you could leave your job? I would have to say, well, I'm a person where I maintain low bills, meaning I don't have a lot of expenses. And I think that's part of freedom, too. I think if you have a lot of expenses, then you're you're working for material items and you become a slave to just all of that. 
And so I've always kept my bills down low. And then I sat down with a financial wizard when it was coming time to sell my condo in New York. Because, you know, to own a piece of property in New York, let me just say, it was it was a nice piece of property. It, you know, you, you don't want to, like, give that up. And so he sat me down and uh, we did the math because I was all over the place. I was like, oh, I don't know what to do. Should I sell? Should I not? <laughs> Even though all my money was wrapped up in this condo. So we literally sat down and did the math. And he was like, you know, you could literally take this money and go buy property and those high rents can support you financially. And we added up my bills. And I think my bills at the time probably totaled up to probably like $2,500, $2,800 a month. And he was like, you can easily cover this and not work a nine to five. And I was like, you're right. And I just set out the mission to like, it just made sense. I was like, put the condo on the market. Yeah. Let's do this. Totally. And then, and then arbitrage the money into something that's going to give you better cash flow. Absolutely. And I was like, and then I was like, and Tiff, in my mind, I was like, Tiff, you've done this already with the duplex in Chicago. It's like the multi-unit in Chicago has been there for you through all the ups and downs. Just buy more. Right. Buy more and build the portfolio. I have these discussions with people all the time that own condos in places like Manhattan or places like, or even Brooklyn now, Williamsburg or places like that, or San Francisco or, you know, really high end markets. And they say to me, oh, I don't know, you know, should I, same thing you just said, right? Should I sell this? And then my market might go up, this might happen, whatever. I said, how, how much is your condo worth? It's worth a million dollars. How much can you rent it for? I can rent it for $4,000 a month. I said, okay. Let's say you have a million dollars of real estate you can rent for $4,000 a month. We at Maverick Investor Group help our clients buy single family homes in good markets or two flats in the South Side, right? Things like that. But let's say a single family home for $100,000 that rents for $1,000 a month, okay? So you can have a million dollars of real estate in New York and get $4,000 of income, or you can sell that, buy 10 single family homes for 100 grand each. You still got a million dollars worth of real estate, but now instead of $4,000 of income, you got $10,000 of income simply by arbitraging your real estate. You have the same million dollars worth of real estate, but if you put it in another market, you get $10,000 of rent instead of $4,000. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Game changer. Game changer. Game changer in terms of the amount of your personal living expenses that can be covered by that, right? In terms of the net after expense uh, money into your pocket. So complete game changer. And that's why this whole concept of geographical arbitrage and understanding that if you live in Manhattan or you live in LA or you live in San Francisco or you live in Miami, cool. Like live in those markets because you like to live there, but you should own your rental property on the South side of Chicago or in another market that makes financial sense where you can buy low, get good tenants, rent high and have that cash flow margin. Yeah. And then those are the kind of tenants too, that to see you through hard times as well. Like the working class, because uh, a lot of times in those luxury top tier markets and, and people start to lose their job and they have all this material stuff that they're paying for. And you have to continue to pay for like this high rent or mortgage. Those high end markets kind of just crumble. They just crash. And then you're holding, you're left with paying that that mortgage or yeah, if you're holding on to like a luxury apartment and stuff like that. Right. And I also like your philosophy in terms of, you know, how you view materialism and consumerism and that kind of stuff. And you you move away from that and instead 
you know, direct your, your resources towards, you know, being able to travel the world and have amazing experiences and things like that instead of stockpiling material items. I mean, as you know, I do the same thing. I literally uh, have been a full-time digital nomad world traveler now since 2013, and I travel the world with carry-on luggage only, right? So, <laughs> only. so, so for me, it's <laughs> like I've been able to really distill down like the material items that I actually need to carry on luggage. And that has allowed me that, you know, that level of minimalism has allowed me to focus on people and relationships and experiences and travel and cultural immersion and food and, you know, just a, a incredible scenery and landscape and like all of the things that are really, really, really important because I've been able to move away from the, you know, social whatever indoctrination and, and pressure to stockpile a whole bunch of expensive material items. Mm-hmm. So true. Yeah. It's so true. And it is funny because, again, I just remember that Honda. I love my Honda. I'll go back to my Honda in a heartbeat if it was still around. I swear I would. I love that. Let me ask you this now and just moving into the into the travel because I know that's something that's really important to you. And I want to just start off by asking you a very broad question about what travel means to you. What do you get out of travel? Why do you travel the world? I travel for freedom. That is like a constant thing in my life since I was little. I would even like when I was in college on spring breaks, I would just like go to places I've never been before. Even just by myself. I feel like I want to see this. And it was just the freedom to like meet people. see. Th I think seeing things for myself is very important to me. So I got to touch it, feel it. I want my account of something, not someone else's story. So that's very important to me. And um, travel just allows all of that. And I, I love history. And sometimes, you know, history can be so tainted. And I just, I, I need to just go see it for myself and acquire history, acquire food. And I think travel allows you to compare things, you know, because if you grow up in just one environment and all you have to compare is that one environment. It's, it's like you're living in like this gray cloud. You don't really know what is what until you can go outside of those boundaries and compare it with other things. And I love the fact that with traveling, it's such an education. It just, I mean, I got my college degree, but the degree in traveling and meeting people and just understanding things about the world that a that you'll just never know unless you travel is just very important to me. I love that. And you and I did the, we met each other because we did the remote year program together, which was 12 months of traveling with the same community to, we lived in 12 different cities for one month each on four continents. And we traveled from Asia to Europe, to Mexico, to South America. And we really saw a huge amount of the world and we did it with a community and once that year was over, you and I have both now participated in the Remote Year Alumni Program, right, called the Citizenship Program. Can you talk about how that whole experience has been for you? Well, I've always wanted, I always thought like the UK kids had it great or the European, I should say European kids, like because they always took this gap year. And I just thought that was phenomenal. I was like, man, so you mean after high school, before you go to college, you get to take a whole year and just travel the world. That's amazing. You know, that's kind of like unheard of in the States. I just always wanted one. So in 2016, I was like, this is my gap year. I'm about to travel the world for a year. I don't care what anybody says. I didn't even tell my family. 
because I just didn't want anybody to just plant any type of negative seed in my mind. I was like, I'm just going to do it. And then in my mind, I was like, well, what if I fail? Then I have to like come back with my tail between the legs. I was just like, let me just go out here and see, see what happens. And then also it was a test too. I was like, can I manage my real estate and be abroad? And I said, if I can, this opens up a whole new ball game for me, man. Them 12 months flew by, barely had any like rental property problems. And if it were, you know, I've called a handyman, called a plumber, called an electrician. I'm like, I can't be there to fix it. So don't stress, just send them in. And that's a good thing about having like long-term tenants and holding on to your property because I'm just going to send the plumber to them while they're at home to fix it. It doesn't require for me to be there. So yeah, it is amazing. So that 12 months really showed me the freedom I could have with real estate. And, you know, that my tenants never knew where I was. I kept the same local number. And, you know, so the tenants would be like, hey, can you, are you going to come around? I haven't seen you. And I'd be like, oh, you know. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Trust me, they're not asking for the landlord to come around, okay? <laughs> I think my tenants love that I have kind of like a hands-off approach with them. I trust them. They trust me. I mean, I really do try to vet and have a real good personal relationship with my tenants and stuff like that. And they take care of the property as if it's their home. And I appreciate that. And I take care of them. Like any little problem, they can call me. I have no problem in fixing anything in my property. And I also think it's cool because, you know, when a tenant does leave, I always take the opportunity to go in and try to upgrade the property so that I can have low maintenance calls throughout the year. I think that's important, too, into like allowing yourself to have more freedom and just not being bogged down. It like I mean, for me, once you get to a point in real estate, it's not like having a nine to five at all. And it was funny, too, because in remote year, we started out with like 72 people. And we all traveled together. And so by like the third month, everyone was scratching their head and they're just like, what do you do again? <laughs> <They're> <laughs> well, like, they, were, they were just like some people were like, what do you do again? But then when they understood what you do, people were like, I want to be Tiffany Green yeah. when I grow up. <laughs> They were like, they were like, we see you at the events, but we don't see you in the workspace. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're like, you're not taking phone calls. Like, you're yeah. just like mosling in. You're just out doing yeah, things I'm, every day. Doing, they were like, you, you know, you get to walk in with makeup and hair done. Like, what, 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 what are you, you doing again? <laughs> you're like real estate investing, yeah. homie. <laughs> then that's it's so funny because then people like one by one would take the time to want to like have a one on one with me, yeah. right? Because yeah. they're just like, I really need to figure this out. Yeah, like, yeah for sure. <laughs> Do you know how many people, even from our remote group, are waiting for this interview <laughs> to be published live? They're like, interview Tiffany Green. We want to understand what she does and how she does it because we want to do that. We want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Now, one of the other things that you do that I want to ask you about is in addition to traveling with the community like Remote Year, you also do a lot of solo travel. And you do solo travel, including to places that some people would consider maybe a little bit intimidating or potentially dangerous or things like that. 
And I want to ask you about that. And do you have any tips for particularly female solo travelers? Because I think there's a lot of apprehension about that when you're going to places like Brazil or you're going to places like West Africa or you're going to places like whatever, and you're doing it by yourself. Do you have any tips for female solo travelers just in terms of safety or in terms of any any other things in terms of how you do what you do? It is funny. Like, I don't I can't really think of anything off the top of my mind except for two things, which I think are funny. One is I just think it is so much fun when you get to like go to a different country and use Tinder to help you like just date different people. I swear to you, it's the (laughs) best ever. Right. And I always make it a rule, like, because sometimes you, you might run into like a married man on Tinder and I just like, no, first of all, I don't do that. But second of all, just don't be out there like just dating someone. You don't know who might show up and what country and what don't put yourself in like situations like that. That's not cool. And I used to like when we traveled through remote year in our group, people would double date. I thought that was kind of cool on Tinder. But far as like a solo traveler, I would always you need a good purse. You need a good purse that goes around your shoulder. One that just can't be easily cut or snatched from your body. I just think that's important. I also think it's important to like uh, meet locals. Because the locals will take you around, take care of you, uh, and they'll tell you the ins and outs of a of a place. You know, how to like handle yourself, which neighborhoods to watch out for. I mean, it, it, it could be dangerous anywhere around the world. And the other thing that I find about solo traveling is that the places the, where people tell you the most, like, watch yourself is dangerous have been some of the most beautiful places I've ever been, some of the most accommodating people I've ever met, some of the safest neighborhoods I've walked around, never had any problems at all. Can you talk a little bit about Brazil? I know that Brazil made, and it's one of my favorite countries, right? I mean, I talk about it all the time. It's amazing. It, it made a huge impact on you as well. And, and a lot of people have impressions of Brazil. That mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's maybe it's dangerous or it's this, but can you talk about what your experience was like there and what Brazil meant to you? Well, it's interesting because coming from like a media background, I understand how like the media can can pinpoint something and then they'll make you think like that's the whole reality of something. And say for and if you really think about it, when you hear stories about Brazil, you always hear about the problem child, Rio. The stories always focus on Rio and Rio has problems, but Rio is glorious too. <laughs> it's amazing. I think I think it is I think it is literally the single most naturally beautiful city I have ever seen anywhere in the world in my entire life. Cape Town is probably number two, but I would put Rio as the number one most naturally gorgeous city on the planet of Earth that I've yeah. ever seen. It's an it's an experience that should not be missed. But Brazil. People don't realize how big Brazil is. It's huge. And so you can't. And so why I'm bringing up like you can't sit here and place this entire country and and think like Rio represents this entire like, yes, you can't do that. It's so big. It's so amazing. It's so many different landscapes, so many different people. And they're so loving and they're very like um, touchy feely. (laughs) (laughs) they're just like they have this zest about them right this excitement and it's like you know like in america sometimes people can be standoffish right it's like i need my personal space and just think of the opposite 
when you go to a place like Brazil, right? It's not about having personal space at all. It, you know, and I, at the time when I traveled with remote gear, one of my goals was to become more open because in the radio industry, um, you can become jaded because everybody needed something, right? Somebody needed a record. Somebody needed this. Someone was always after you. So you kind of build this wall of protection around yourself. And so when I stepped out of radio, I was like, you know what? This is my time to open up, to express myself. This is my time to connect with people. And Brazil was like, that's why I wanted to go to Brazil because I knew they were like fun loving people they love to just hug and sing and dance like you know I was just like I need to be more open and like not be afraid of when I enter a room of a group of new people and I used to be that way like I would enter a room of new people and I would just be that one in the corner right you know just putting the wall up and and now I don't have that problem at all now I need to just really just shut up right you know like (laughs) so I went to Brazil to help do to help me get over that hurdle. And it was so much fun. It was, uh, I love Brazil, Brazil, Brazil so much. And I'm so glad that they dropped the visa requirement. So amazing. I mean, I, I remember going there the first time and I went to Rio and I lived in Rio for two consecutive months. And I was there for Carnival. And then I was there for the entire month after Carnival, right? To kind of see it at a more regular time, if you will. And I was so enamored with Rio that I literally did not leave Rio for 60 days to go see any other part of the country because I was like, who would leave Rio? Like, this place is too amazing. And then after I left Brazil, I was like, the only place I saw was Rio. So then I'm talking to other travelers and they're like, man, Sao Paulo is my favorite city in the world. Man, you got to go see this. You got to go see that. It's like, I got to go back to Brazil. So then I did. I went back to Sao Paulo and I was blown away by Sao Paulo. Totally different from Rio. But unbelievable. And then I went back a third time and I went to beach towns, you know, northern Brazil, Pipa and Jericho Cuara and these kind of places. And I was like totally different from Rio or Sao Paulo. Right. But unbelievable. So I'm like, man, and each time I go to Brazil, I just I'm like, this is why I love Brazil. There's a magic about it. There's a music that just like a rhythm that infuses the culture of everyday life in Brazil that I feel is like unbelievably unique. Yeah. And, and to me, if you're a nature lover and you haven't been Brazil, you haven't seen nature. It is that amazing. It really is. The landscape is so different from the north. From the south, from the center, it's amazing. And I always tell people, just imagine like when the continents were like all together and you see where Brazil broke off from Africa and you know Africa has stunning landscape. So imagine a piece of Africa breaking off and floating over. That's Brazil, people. Like that's how wonderful it is. Like... (laughs) It's amazing. It's it's completely epic. I'm just like, I have the 10-year visa, so I'm excited to plan my next trip back there. I feel like I need to go at least once every one or two years and just see a new part yeah. of it. It's such a huge country, and every time I go, it's just heartwarming and magical. So amazing. All right. Tiffany, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? Yes. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. We're starting off with this one just because we spent so much time talking about your hip-hop background. I am really excited to ask you this question. Who are your top five hip-hop MCs of all time? It would have to be, not in this order, but top of mind would be Nas. I love Nas. Oh, I love uh, Jay-Z's first album. 
Just love it. I Tupac. Oh, I love Tupac. Yes, I like Tupac over Biggie, but Tupac. I would have to say Rakim. It's a good one. <laughs> Probably have to say Rakim. And I'm such a Big L fan. Big L. Big L. That yes. That's awesome. Yes. That's a great top five. I love that. Awesome. All right. Next question. If you were able to have a dinner with one person who's currently alive today, could be celebrity, author, public figure, artist, musician, anybody that's currently living today who you've never spent meaningful time with, who would you choose and why? I don't really know, but I guess off the top of my mind would be Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> That would be amazing. <laughs> he just doesn't give a care, right? And I love that attitude. It's like when you reach a certain point in life, you're just like, I don't care. Like, he's so funny, but he's so sincere. He, I don't know. I would love to sit down and just talk to him. I think I would just laugh the entire time with him and just to listen to his voice. That's an amazing answer. I I have to agree. That would be unbelievable dinner. <laughs> yes, I would love that. That would be so entertaining. Could you not? <laughs> I agree. That's an amazing pick. All right, <laughs> Tiffany, knowing everything that you know now and all the lessons that you've learned throughout your life, if you were able to go back in time and give one lesson to your 18-year-old self, one piece of advice, what would you tell 18-year-old Tiffany? To start investing earlier. I guess I bought my first house at 32. So I would say save, save, save. Like all that money I spent on crazy stuff in college. I mean, I could have just saved that and just really bought property like out of college, in college. Yeah, I would have told myself to do that. Because you bought your first property at 32 and you retired at 42. So that's a pretty <laughs> that's a pretty amazing <laughs> 10 year stretch. And so if you had started yeah. that much earlier, right. you could have started traveling yeah. the world on your passive income that much earlier. Absolutely. I love that. And I just I think it's so important that we spend so much time uh, well I did like making other people rich meaning like the radio, other radio companies and the entities, like making them money because they gave me a paycheck for it. But at the same time, and I gave them all my time, energy and resources. And I didn't like reserve any of that for me. So I think it's important to like, you know, do your best on the job, but you can't just exhaust yourself and give it all to them. You have to like leave some and do something and build something for yourself. And so at 40, the light went off. I said, you know what? I'm unhappy right now. And I keep doing all this stuff for these companies. But what am I doing for myself? And I was like, I don't want to be that 50 year old in the club. Like, yeah, what's that new joint? What's that? You know what I'm saying? Like, it just I was like, no, like you need to change something up. And that's when I started to seek, like, how can I support myself, right? What's the plan to put in action for me? How can I incorporate myself? And I started to do that at 40. I love that. That's awesome. Just, just making the decision that you're going to take control of your own financial future mm -hmm. and then doing it. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Next question. What are your top three travel destinations you've ever been to that you'd most recommend to other people to visit, check out. Uh, okay, not in any particular order, but what pops to mind would be the Philippines. 
The Philippines are amazing. Right up there with Brazil. Like, yeah. And it's so, like, untouched. It's so, like, undiscovered. Why do you think people don't go to the Philippines? You know, I have actually never been to the Philippines myself, but I have heard. Oh, first of all, I follow you on social media, so I saw your pictures. So it's now very, very high on my list, and I have heard you rave about it. So I am, you know, it's very high on my list, but I've never even been there. You've never been there. I don't think you would leave. Like, yeah. <laughs> you can literally spend 10 years in the Philippines and not visit all the territory, all of the islands. Is that massive and the people are beautiful. The food could be a little better, but <laughs> the landscape, the beauty, the nature is so, so stunning. You don't even really think about food. Can you not? Other places you're like, oh, the food, the food. You don't really think about the food there. That's a, it's really amazing like that. So the Philippines, you know, I love Brazil. What would be another one that I've been to, right? Yeah, that you've been to that you most recommend. So Philippines, Brazil, and what's your third one? Um, my third one would be Cuba keeps popping up. Cuba was always like one of my favorite destinations because we kind of traveled to Cuba when, you know, you weren't supposed to. But just I think that just made it all the more fun. All right. Okay. <laughs> all right. Cuba number three. So next question, what are your top three bucket list destinations that you've never been to that are currently the highest on your list to visit? Right now would be, okay. So I really want to go to um, Cabo Verde. I really, really, really want to go there. I think one day I really want like high on my list. I think I want to visit Russia. I really, I think I really want to visit Russia just because a lot of people, like a lot of Americans don't really get a chance to go to Russia. Totally. I'm going in September. Did I tell you that? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. I got the visa, went through the whole process. What? So I'm going to, I'm going to go to St. Petersburg. I'm going to go to Moscow. And then I'm going to do the Nomad Train, uh-huh. which is the Trans-Siberian Railway uh-huh. with a group of like 20 plus nomads mm. who in an organized thing. So we go and, and the, the Trans-Siberian goes from, Nomad Train goes from Moscow all the way through Siberia and then down to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. Wow. And we end in Mongolia. So I'm doing it in September. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I had a friend who used to go to Russia all the time. He said some of the most beautiful people in the world are on the border between Asia and Russia. And he said that he said some of the most amazing parties are in those like border towns between the mix of the two people. And I was like, where? He loves the party, too. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Duly noted. But um, So, yeah, Russia. And then, um, which I plan to do, I really want to get into, like, the Caribbean. I really want to get into, like, Haiti. I want to visit. Yeah, I just really want to get into the Caribbean because it's so close to the U.S., it has a lot of history, especially for, yeah, it just has a lot of history that I really, really want to get into. And, you know, uh, history is such a big thing for me. That's one of the reasons why I went to Brazil. It's the reason why I'm here in West Africa and the Caribbean has all of that too. So I want to get into all of that. Awesome. All right, Tiffany, at this point, I want you to let people know how they can get a hold of you, follow your travel adventures on social media. How can people find you? I guess that would be on Instagram <laughs> <laughs> at uh, Tiffany Green 2011. 
and um, uh, I, I think under the same name under Facebook. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Cool. We're going to link up your social media handles and everything that we have referenced in this episode in the show notes at themaverickshow.com. So people can just go to one place there and start following all of your amazing adventures on social media. Tiffany, thank you so much for being on the show. It was awesome to have you. Thank you for having me. All right. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Good night. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. Do you know how to determine actual market rents and localized vacancy rates for individual properties at the address level? Do you know how to determine the strength of the rental market where your property is located and which direction rental rates are trending? Learn how at themaverickshow.com slash rent. This data has historically been difficult to ascertain, but now you can pull reports that contain all this information for any address in the U.S. And you can pull your first report for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash rent.